Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. All right, we are in Acts chapter 4 this morning, Acts chapter 4. So if you'd grab your uh, Bibles, uh, open them up. Uh, If you uh, have the Bible app, you can actually follow along in the Bible app there. Uh, Go to the events page, and uh, it should find the notes for today. There's notes in your bulletin as well, if you'd like to follow along. We're in this series through the book of Acts, and it's simply called, What Makes Us Who We Are? We're looking at traits and identifiers from the early church to identify what makes us who we are today. What did the early church look like? And what values and what, uh, what things did they endure as a church uh, that gives us our DNA? And so we are in Acts chapter 4. Remember, we are continuing the narrative that we started in Acts chapter 3. So some highlights from our study last week. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going together. They're going to the temple at the hour of prayer. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they go to the temple. And we talked about the temple, and we talked about what type of edifice this was. This was a massive beautiful structure that Herod uh, started building, uh, we want to say in, uh, in uh, 19, well, I think it was uh, 1980 or 19 BC, and then it uh, got finished around 66 AD, and it lasted for about three or four years until it was destroyed in 70 AD. This, this uh, temple took up 40 football fields. This was a massive, beautiful structure inlaid with gold and Corinthian bronze, all of these types of beautiful elements that went into constructing the temple. And in the temple, there was this, uh, there was this custom that if you were physically unwell, you were not allowed to enter the temple or worship in the temple. And so we saw last week that there was a lame man that stood at the entry of the temple, at the gate beautiful, and he would sit there because he was lame. We'll find out later in uh, the chapter we're in today that he's 40 years old, most likely lame from birth. His family probably planted him there in order to simply ask for alms. He would ask for money and charity and anything that people would give as they would go to the temple. Remember, the temple is a, is a financial institution as well. People would go there and they would buy the different uh, sacrifices that would need to uh, purchase that day. They would take money with them. So oftentimes when you went to the temple, you had your pocketbook ready. You had, uh, you had money ready. And so if you had extra money, the people that, the, uh, uh, that were begging would ask for those alms. Um, we see the story that um, as, uh, as the lame man was there, um, he sees Peter and John come. And Peter and John are well-known entities at this point. They have already preached in the temple. And the layman sees Peter and John and he says, I know who they are. Maybe they'll have something as well. And so he asks of some charity. He asks for some alms of Peter and John. And the Bible talks about how that Peter directed his gaze towards the lame man. What a beautiful picture of Jesus uh, always noticing people where they were. And now we see Peter noticing this lame man, giving him eye contact, giving him worth in that moment. And Peter utters that phrase that many of us have heard throughout our years in church, perhaps, where he says, I have no silver and gold. Silver and gold have I none. 
But what I have, I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the result was remarkable, right? They went walking and leaping and praising God. And the man got so excited, he forgot that he had spent 40 years unwell. And all of a sudden, the door of the temple was right in front of him. And here's this man, I want you to picture, for 40 years, has never been able to enter into worship, has never been able to give a sacrifice. He's always been just on the outside, and now he's healed, and now he has the opportunity. And what was keeping him from entering before was no longer a factor, right? So he walks in. No, the Bible says he went walking and leaping and praising God inside the temple, What a scene that was. The people were amazed. They were astonished. And we understand from Acts 1 and 2 that when we see a miracle happen in the book of Acts, the disciples used that as an opportunity to preach the gospel. The miracles were a vehicle to point people to Jesus. And so Peter preaches this sermon, and that sermon goes really simply like this. Jesus was and is the Messiah. He was and is God Almighty. He's died for your sin, and he has rose again to give you life. It's a pretty good message. Uh, You know what we're preaching on Easter? Jesus was and is the Messiah. He was and is God Almighty. He died on a cross for our sins to give us everlasting life, the same message. Uh, We'll see something interesting, that whenever there's a miracle performed... In the book of Acts, some, several things will happen. One thing will happen is, uh, we just talked about it, Act, uh, John and Peter, the other disciples, they would use the miracles as a vehicle to bring people to Jesus. So they would end up preaching. There's some 12 or 13 sermons recorded in the book of Acts that we're going to look at uh, one of them today. After there was the preaching, you will find that there's persecution that comes to the church. Um, the people are threatened, the Jewish elite are threatened at this point, and they, uh, the, the church is growing by leaps and bounds, and so these miracles followed by preaching would inevitably be led to people believing in Jesus and people being added to the church, and then this persecution would come. We're going to see that today, the persecution that comes. So let's go to Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1. It says this, As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So here's our cast of characters as we open Acts chapter 4. John and uh, Peter and John are preaching to the people. And now we have these groups of people that came upon them. We have priests, we have the captain of the temple, and we have Sadducees. So the priests, we want to Uh, Set the table so you kind of understand there were some 21,000 priests in first century Jerusalem. They were not all full-time priests, uh, but they were born in the right tribe and they had the right qualifications. And they were full-time farmers or they were full-time masons or other jobs. And most of them were not wealthy, but two weeks out of the year they would come to Jerusalem and they would serve in the temple. They would also come on the bigger festivals as the crowds would grow to help offset the, uh, the, the, the work. But these were 21,000 priests that were there. Um, and so we have a number of them there now because this is a major feast that we've just had, the Pentecost. We have the captain of the temple. Now, 
the temple was a financial institution, and so it made sense that they had bodyguards. It made sense that they had soldiers and warriors that were protecting the financial institution. They were also protecting the center of culture for the Jewish people. And then you have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are a mixture. They're a, they're a Jewish political and religious party. Uh, the one major characteristics of the Sadducees is they denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They accepted the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, and nothing else. Nothing past the time of Moses. And so when, uh, when they would uh, be compared to the Pharisees, uh, well, they didn't believe in the supernatural, not in angels, not in spirits, not in resurrections. Um, and so they were, uh, they were different than the Pharisees, but they carried incredible leverage in uh, Jerusalem because they were willing to work with the Roman leadership. So they carried a lot of political clout. So here's the scene. The lame man gets healed. People are astonished, amazed. But how would these cast of characters react? Let's go to verse 2. They were greatly annoyed. Let's just stop there. When was the last time you were annoyed? When was the last time you were greatly annoyed? Right? Because, look at the reason. They were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So here's the thing. If the people believed in the resurrection, it would, it would uh, threaten their status quo. The power that the Sadducees had, the influence, the relationship and partnership with Rome would be questioned their position of authority. And so furthermore, believing in the resurrection of Jesus meant that Jesus was and is God. So this is how they responded to him. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now this was done all of a sudden, it feels like. Peter, by the way, his message was four to six hours long. Hello. And so when he got started, no doubt what had happened was this. They were notified. The captain of the temple were notified. The priests were notified. Uh, the Sadducees were notified. And it took some time for them to organize their efforts against Peter and John. But he'd been preaching likely for about four to six hours. And so this type of action to arrest them and to wait until the next day, we see that and we might understand it as being cruel or um, a rash decision. But under Jewish custom, this was not um, enacting a punishment because they were cruel or being rash. This was actually a cooling off period. This was a legal cooling off period. Um, in Jewish culture, at this point, they didn't conduct trials at night. They didn't perform executions at night. So what they would do is when they would have a situation that would run into the evening, they would simply allow the uh, prisoners or those that were being accused to be arrested. They would give them a meal. They would give them a place to stay. And it allowed everyone to consider their actions. We read on in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So understand, in the four to six hours that Peter is preaching, people are gathering. They're coming multitudes. 5,000 Men, that means that it most likely represented 5,000 families. And their men, their, their women and their children, their wives and their families would be there. And so one of the characteristics of the early church is this. There was numerical growth. By the time we get to uh, Acts chapter 6, we'll see the progression. But historically speaking, whenever there was true persecution, 
the kingdom of God expands. So the church grew from in Acts 1, there's 120 people in the upper room. They're waiting for uh, the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes. Uh, Acts chapter 2 happens. We see the the tongues. We see them preaching in tongues. We see uh, them being accused of being drunk. We see Peter explain that and then preach a sermon. And at the end of that sermon, at the end of Acts 2, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Now we have some new confessions of faith. The number goes from 120 in Acts chapter 1 to 3,120 in Acts chapter 2. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, we have 5,000 now, most likely families. We get to Acts chapter 5, they stop counting. They just call them multitudes. We get to Acts chapter 6, and something unusual happened. A great many priests and their families Um, So priests, that means uh, the priests were converting, but then anybody that was uh, learning or worshiping under that priest, all of those families likely converted as well. So one of the characteristics of the early church is this incredible numerical growth, 5,000 now families. We go to verse 5, it says this, on the next day their rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Boy, this Uh, this exponential growth was going to threaten them. It says they gathered in verse 6 with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. This is commonly referred to as the Sanhedrin. This is the gathering council. This is tantamount to the supreme court of the land. So this scene was crafted on purpose. This was a scene of power and intimidation. You'd think about the events that had unfolded. Uh, This was the same group of leaders that had condemned Jesus to death, right? And they wanted Peter and John and the rest of these new followers in Jesus Christ to know that they had the power to do the same thing to you now. So they gathered this scene, this cast of characters. It starts with the priest and the captain of the temple and then uh, the uh, Sadducees. And then they gather the Sanhedrin. You have the high priestly families coming together. And in verse 7, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, what gives you the right to do this? How dare you? What gives you the authority? What gives you the power to heal someone? In whose name are you doing this? Now, Peter was very clear in Acts 3 when he healed him, right? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter, there was no, um, there was no guile in, in Peter. There was no deception in Peter. Peter was very clear. And they were giving Peter and John an out. They were giving Peter and John the opportunity to, to maybe just take back a few steps. We, uh, there was enough witnesses that heard and saw what you did, but we're going to ask you now in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of everyone, hey, by what power, by what name? In other words, we're giving you an out. If you just retract just a little bit, then we'll let you off the hook. If they succumbed to the threat that they would send a message to everyone else, if not, they would punish Peter and John, and then the message would be sent. And so for the, peace, the priestly family at this point, these questions, this was a win-win no matter how it was answered. They did not count on how Peter would answer. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, 
If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, Peter's logic was piercing. He says this, why are we on trial for a good deed? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's interesting because the Sanhedrin thought they were going to give Peter and John an out. Hey, uh, by what name are you doing this? If you just back off just a little bit on this stance, then, then we'll let you go. Our message will be sent, and we will wash our hands from this. By what name? By whose authority? By, by what power are you doing this? They were giving Peter and John an out, and it's so beautiful that the way Peter responds because in his response, it was the Sanhedrin who were going to get the opportunity to get it out. They were going to get the opportunity to repent. In the face of persecution, though, Peter spoke from his faith, not his fear. That's a timely lesson for us, isn't it? This should have been an intimidating, intimidating experience for Peter and John. They've been suddenly arrested. The officials were greatly annoyed. They've been handled roughly. Some translations will say that they, were, uh, they laid hands on them. There's threats being made against them. They've been thrown into jail. The entire atmosphere, the entire scene was designed to cause them to live in their fear and to respond in their fear. Now understand, Christianity was not an organized effort. They were few in numbers, relatively speaking. So they had 3,000 people come saved. There's 20, 21,000 priests alone in Jerusalem. They were inexperienced in leadership. There was no church structure or church leadership. They were commanded to not fight back. They were not a militant group, the early followers of Jesus Christ. And they were opposed by institutions that had existed for hundreds of years. Um, in Acts chapter 4, if you look at the verse 6 verses, and you start circling the groups that were opposing these followers, there's almost a dozen individuals named. You have the priests, the Sadducees, the rulers, elders, scribes, others from the high family priests, the captain of the temple, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. These all were imposing their will on Peter and John and sending a message to the followers of Jesus, we have the power. It was only some 50-odd days that we crucified your Savior, your Messiah. And if you keep this up, we had the power to do that, it would be just as easy for us to carry out that fate with you as well. And if you are allowed to preach as you have been preaching, it is because we are permitting you to do so. And anytime you want, we can arrest you, carry you off to jail. And yet the Bible's very specific. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that there was no fear, but in the face of the opposition, in the face of persecution, Peter spoke from his faith, not his fear. You and I have an opportunity to do that nearly every day of our lives. Because fear exists and it's present. And typically, the, um, uh, the bucket in our life that carries fear simply responds to what we're listening to. So if we, are, 
if we're listening to our past, if we're listening to our guilt and our shame from the past, then all of a sudden our fear bucket gets filled up. If we're listening to uh, unhealthy places, whether it's social media or the news or uh, other places or other entertainment that fills you with fear, what happens is you might have uh, you might have your morning prayer time. Uh, we've given you some tools to have a, a daily time for the next 21 days. And after that's the only three or four minutes you're commuting with God. And then you go on the rest of the day listening to every source of fear. Can you see how your fear and faith get imbalanced? And typically, whatever's the loudest is what we're going to listen to. It's a beautiful lesson to us that God rarely yells at us. The Bible speaks about his voice being a calm whisper next to us. Why does Jesus whisper? Why does God whisper to us? Because he's standing right next to us. He doesn't have to yell above everything else. He's, it's a small whisper. So uh, this is a beautiful lesson for us that even in the presence of what would be a fearful event, Paul responded with his faith. Now, the interesting cycle we see continue is that while there were miracles that led to preaching and preaching led to persecution, in the face of that persecution, what we see next is this, Paul still or Peter still responds with more preaching. Being filled with the Holy Spirit was not and is not a one-time event. The Bible says this, he was instantly filled with the Holy Spirit again, evident by his boldness and ability to speak the gospel directly to the heart of the matter. The filling of the Holy Spirit that Peter experienced in Acts 2-4 was not a one-time event. It was something God wanted to continue to do in their lives. Now, in Peter's response to the Sanhedrin, he quotes from Psalm 118. Beautiful verse here. He says this, this Jesus is the stone. Let's read this verse together. Ready? Begin. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Here's the beautiful thing Peter learned over the years, no doubt. Now, if you've been in church any length of time for, we know at this point for years, he's followed Jesus with the other disciples. And for years, Peter has proved himself passionate, exuberant, wanting to take action perhaps when no one else would. He was the one that wanted to walk on the water, right? He was the one just getting ready. And you, um, you think about that amount of, of faith and passion that saw Jesus and said, well, if you beckon, I'll come out and I will walk on the water with you. That kind of passion. He was the same Peter that wanted to build tents at the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's a beautiful, beautiful sin. Here's Peter and John. They go up with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They don't know what's going to come. Jesus appears, or, or I'm sorry, God, God thunders his voice, and there appears unto him two prophets of old. Uh, you hear the audible voice of God saying, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter just can't help himself. He just, he has to say something. He's like, 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 this is so great. Jesus, what if we just build tents and we just hang out here all day long? And, 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 and Jesus just interrupts him in that moment. This is the same Peter. This is the same Peter that 
um, that wielded a sword when they came to arrest Jesus. What a scene. Jesus is being set up by Judas. The night before, by the way, beautiful picture again. Jesus is, is, is uh, with the Last Supper, right? And he's praying with his disciples. Um, and he shares a meal with the one who's going to betray him. Judas sets him up. The Roman authorities come. And Peter wields his sword and slices off the ear of one of the soldiers. I don't know if that means he was a good aim or not so good aim. You think about Peter and all the passion and all the exuberance and all of the ways he wanted to take action. It appears now in Acts chapter 4, after years of following Christ, after years of seeing Jesus um, uh, act so unselfishly, after years of seeing all of this, after seeing Jesus die, after going through that, after those two or three lonely, lonely days of sorrow, after one of the women who had heard that Jesus was arose came and ran and came to Peter and said, he is alive. After going through all these events, after, after the, the days where they're just waiting for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes, after all this, it's as if Peter learned this lesson. It's not about me. This whole thing has never been about me. And so here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, he says this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Oh, church, when, when people reject the very gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not about us in that moment. They're rejecting Jesus. Peter says, uh, Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter always shifted the attention from himself to Jesus. Here he is. He's under the threat of persecution. He's under the threat of further imprisonment. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit again. He begins walking through the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the day, and he makes the case on why he cannot but speak about the goodness of God. This was the chosen Messiah, Galatians 4.4 4 said he was at the fullness of time he was born. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He died on the cross. He resurrected. He was the chosen one. He was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. They had the opportunity to embrace him as the Messiah, and yet just 40, 50 days ago, when they had that chance, they rejected him. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. They rejected Jesus, and they threw him as a stone, as you would throw a stone away. And if you carry out that picture, the stone lands in exactly the right spot at the right time on the cross. And with his life and death and resurrection and everything else fell into place, Peter then makes this grand declaration. There is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter didn't simply proclaim Jesus as a way of salvation, but as the only way of salvation. You say, Daniel, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? 
You believe he's the only way to God, the only way to gain an eternal life. Well, Peter here is only repeating what Jesus said himself. John 14, he's with the disciples, and Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know which way you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what if I lived a really good life, but I just did it on my own? Well, how good is good? Who are we using on the spectrum of good as we're comparing your good life? What's the gold standard of the good? Because if, if you use me as your standard of good, by all means, you can come on in. But the standard of what is good and holy and righteous is God. Well, what if, uh, what if I got, uh, what if I just gave all my wealth away? What if I was just really good with my money and I gave 10.5% of everything away, above and beyond? What if I just really lived a good life? What if, and the focus that Jesus tried to tell the disciples on John 14, and the focus that Peter is explaining in Acts 4 is, it's not what we can do, but what he has already done. So there is no other name. No one else lived a sinless life perfect life. No one else died for your sin. No one else rose from the dead by his own power. If you're going to be rescued, if you're going to be made right with God, Jesus is going to have to do it. Now, if someone wishes to believe that they are saved because all roads lead to heaven, and that one can take the best of all faiths and blend them into one um, cosmic smoothie. I say this with all sincerity. You may choose to believe that, and you must bear the consequences. But please do not claim this as a teaching of the Bible. There is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are made, by which we must be saved. You see, based on, on Acts, verse, uh, Acts 4, verse 12, we either let that statement stand on our own, or we say that Peter is a liar and Jesus is a liar. There's no middle ground there. Look at these verses again. Let them sink in today. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The greatest strategy, the greatest tragedy in all of history is that he is rejected by those he came to save. There's a story I read in a book in North Carolina, um, 
a story I read in a book about a farmhouse in North Carolina. It starts with the farmer's son who stayed home from church one Sunday in 1799. He, along with his two siblings, faked that they were sick and stayed home. So his parents went to church and they stayed home. They were playing and fishing in the Little Meadow Creek in North Carolina. And they fell and they hurt themselves. And they went back to see what they had stumbled on. And it was this massive, heavy rock. Conrad Reed picked up the rock and he found it was heavy, as any little boy would have done. And he proud to show it to his father. And then he had to explain what he was doing by the creek while they were at church. His father, John Reed, took the rock and realized how heavy it was and said, maybe this is more than just rock. And so he took it to a silversmith to see if it had any value. And the silversmith quickly dismissed the idea of the rock being valuable, which was okay with them. John took the rock home, and they put it by the doorstep. And for three or four years, they used it as a doorstop for their door. He found out later, a few years later, when a goldsmith looked at it, that in reality, this rock contained 17 pounds of pure gold. John Reed began to find more gold in that stream and mines and thanked his kids for staying home from church that Sunday. That's not the lesson, sorry. They started mining that creek, that stream, and mines started popping all over North Carolina, part of America's gold rush on the East Coast. Here's this rock. It had been there for generations. People never recognize its value. The application is simple. To some, it was something simply they tripped over. To others, it became a stepping stone, and to others, it was just a heavy rock. But one day, the value was received, or revealed, I should say. I fear that as we approach Easter, we... We minimize what Jesus did on the cross by reducing it to this one day. And I love Easter Sunday. Um, we have made so many plans and preparations. Our children's team has worked uh, to provide an awesome experience for kiddos on that day. Our worship team has practiced since last month several times already. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun things on this Easter Sunday. But if you're watching at home or if you're here today, I just I want to encourage you, what would it look like if we didn't reduce it to this one day? This, this, this one day where we simply dress up and we have the party and we have the festivities. And we go home like we celebrated any other holiday. What happens if we don't reduce it to one day, but then the power and the truth of these verses are revealed in our hearts? And instead of being reduced to one day, we embrace Jesus as the cornerstone for our families. And we say, my goodness, if we, if we, if we align this one stone right in our family, everything else is set up. If we, if, we, if we build our house, if we build our church on, on this as our cornerstone, 
if we truly embrace what this says and we believe there's salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and we don't reduce it to this one single day that we celebrate once a year and there's more people in church that, and we see people we haven't seen in a while and maybe, and, and we see that, but then all of a sudden, God grabs a hold of our heart and it changes us from the inside out. So now, not only are we celebrating it on Easter, but now our priorities have changed. Now how we spend our money is influenced by Jesus. Now how we raise our kids are influenced. Now the types of extracurricular activities they're involved in are influenced by Jesus, now the way that we parent, the way that we love one another, the way that we forgive one another are influenced by Jesus. There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.